So in the cold, dark months in Beaver County, Joy and I like to watch movies together. And we have very different viewing tastes, and so some healthy marital compromise is always in order as we shuffle back and forth between our cinematic choices. Now one of us wants to watch gritty films based on war, honest realism, and maybe a little bit of gratuitous violence. This will then be followed by a Hallmark Christmas movie <laughs> or a, a Nicholas Sparks film. And I do appreciate the joy lets me watch The Notebook and Love Come Softly <laughs> and A Royal Christmas after I sit through her favorite films, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, and John Wick. A recent profound realistic film which I did get to watch which did have quite an impact on me, was called A Hidden Life by Terence Malick. It's about a humble family living in Austria during the rise of Nazi power. And Franz, the main character, is a hardworking, respectable farmer. He's a good father, he's a loving husband, and he's a deeply religious man. Now, all Austrian men of fighting age are being demanded to swear an oath of allegiance to Hitler and to Nazism. And of course, no conscientious objectors are allowed. Detractors will be executed. The movie portrays the social pressures that bear down on Franz as he is pressured to compromise and to speak out a loyalty to a regime which he knows is intrinsically evil. His extended family, his church superiors, his village friends all try to sway him. And they tell him, Franz, think about your family. Think about your uh, wife. Think about your widowed mother and your two little girls who will be facing ultimate ruin by these unnecessary scruples that you have. After all, Hitler's only rescuing the Germans from decades of shame and oppression. This is just spiritual pride, Franz, thinking that you alone know better when everyone else is, is willing to make this small concession. And the movie richly portrays a deep moral struggle that Franz endures as he walks a very difficult path in an environment which tests the essence of his character. He is up against serious satanic elements at work in Austro-Germanic society. It's a kind of concentrated anti-Christ spirit that is manifesting itself in an alarming and an unprecedented form in his life. Now today we'll look at some spiritual issues faced by a church in the first century, which was also heavily pressured externally and internally to cut some corners uh, to make some accommodations in their faith. And this is a church in a tucked away corner of Asia Minor called Pergamum. It's the third church I have looked at in the sermon series of these seven churches in Asia in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. But before we dive in, let's just step back and remind ourselves of some of the contours of the opening chapters of Revelation. So it starts in Revelation chapter 1. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit 
And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, so far we have looked at the promises and the warnings of Jesus to the churches in Ephesus and Laodicea. Today we'll explore Christ's message in the city of Pergamum. Remember in our next slide that the author is uh, John of Patmos, who's writing in exile from an island off the west coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day coastal Turkey. And the most widely accepted opinion is that this is written in the last decade of the first century AD, and the emperor Domitian is on the throne. And Domitian reignites the imperial persecutions against the Christians, and he insisted that they all call him Lord and God. And they required that they venerate him in the form of public sacrifices, sprinkling, sprinkling a little pinch of in, incense to his name. Now also remember that each of these messages to these seven churches follows a pattern. And usually the opening uh, form is a sentence giving a vivid description of Jesus meant to encourage the believers. So in Ephesus, Jesus walks among them. He walks amongst the golden lampstands in his Shekinah glory. In Laodicea, Jesus calls himself the Amen, the faithful, and the true. And normally these titles or these images of Jesus are speaking to direct problems that these believers are facing. The descriptions of Jesus are then followed by praise for the strengths of the believers in the cities. So Ephesus is commended for its tough believers who are contending for their faith. The praises are then followed up by rebukes for shortcomings. Remember the Laodiceans are lukewarm and he will spit them out of his mouth. They're neither hot nor cold. Then there's always a closing section rounded out with promises for those who overcome their present trials. The Ephesians will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. The Laodiceans will eat in fellowship with Jesus if they open the door to him as he stands and knocks. In each of the messages, normally Jesus also includes precise imagery of something from the local settings such as aqueducts, which are either hot or cold, but by the time that the water's piped into Laodicea, it's tepid. This basic pattern then, description, praise, rebuke, promise, and then some local allusions. This is also found in the message to the city of Pergamon. Pergamon is famous for two things in the ancient world. Number one, it's perched high on a thousand foot cliff high on a hill, with an imposing citadel that inspired security and a sense of power. And second, it is home to the most important of the temples of the Greco-Roman deities and the Caesars in all of Asia Minor. And both of these are alluded to now in our message to Pergamum. So let's have a closer look, and let's start with the opening description of Jesus. So, in Revelation chapter 2, <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. The sharp, double-edged sword. 
So everybody living in the Roman Empire knew exactly what this was referring to. This is the feared Roman gladius, the sword of choice for all Roman men in either combat on the field or in the arena. It is uh, feared because of its shape and its efficiency. It's lethal. It cuts both ways. In fact, we get the word gladiator from this sword, which is the gladius. And this symbolizes the power of Rome, which has conquered all the known world and holds it in subjection to the emperor. Now, for Jesus to say that he holds the double-edged sword is quite a claim, particularly given the undeniable political realities that everybody is facing in the empire. Now, the Christians would have picked up on that imperial symbolism of the gladius sword. They would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about, but they would have also thought of a couple associations from the Old Testament. So even before the rise of Rome, the language of the double-edged sword appears in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's always, always linked to God's judgment, without any exceptions. So the first example is in Judges chapter 3, where there is a left-handed judge named Ehud. And Ehud goes and plunges a double-edged sword all the way up to the hilt into the stomach of a pagan Moabite king. And he plunges it so far in this king's belly, this king is massively overweight, he can't get the sword back because the, the stomach fat closes in all around it. So you have this very dramatic image of, of judgment and assassination. Um, this king is being judged for how he treats the people of God. The second passage comes from Psalm 149, verses 6 to 9. And we can read this. Um, may the, or I can read it for you. But may the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict judgment and vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters and their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his faithful people. Praise the Lord. Now, surrounded by very hostile powers, the psalmist is actually saying he's looking forward to a time when he will offer praise to God with a sword in his hand because of the wrath that's going to fall on the pagan oppressors. And the divine judgment will be inflicted by this sword. And the harmful principalities will be shackled and bound. So very, very, very clear what's happening here. The third instance where the double-edged sword is referenced is in the book of Proverbs. And it relates to the temptations of adultery and sexual compromise. So Solomon warns his son in Proverbs 5, 4. For the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she's bitter gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. So, from the beginning of this message, the Christians in Pergamum would have all read the description of Jesus wielding a double-edged sword, and they would have interpreted it instinctively as a symbol of impending judgment upon imperial Rome with all its manifestations of oppression, with all the temptations of impurity, spiritual adultery, and compromise. And against this backdrop, then, Jesus launches into praise for their perseverance. 
So praise for the church. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Pergamum was called the most distinguished city in Asia Minor. It was the finest flower of Greek civilization, they said. And again, it's known for the citadel high on the hill. In fact, Pergamum means citadel. It had its sacred buildings nestled high on the summit. From the road below, if you looked up, you would be visually stunned by the sight of Pergamum. What an impressive stronghold. And yet, Christ tells the Christians, this is where Satan dwells. In the east, Pergamum has become a center of satanic influence. Why would this be? Well, we know that Pergamum was the first city in Asia which was given permission to construct a temple to the emperor, to the living emperor Caesar Augustus, and it becomes the center of the imperial cult in the east, where the veneration of the Caesars is demanded. In Pergamum, the gospel the good news of the emperor had been preached. Caesar Augustus was called the Prince of Peace. Did you know that? Caesar Augustus was known as the Prince of Peace. His reign was said to usher in the peace of the kingdom, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. He was also called Savior, the Father, and the Lord. Pergamum is the most likely place where an open clash between the two Gospels one of the emperor and one of the Christ would take place. Now, tied into all of this, then, is the fact that Pergamum is also the epicenter where the pagan gods are worshipped in this area of the world. Christ says this is the throne of Satan. Dominating the Acropolis, the high point in Pergamum, was an altar where they continually burned animal sacrifices to Zeus, the most fearsome deity of the Greco-Roman religion. From down below, if you looked up top, it looked like an actual throne sitting there. The power of the Roman state and the power of the emperor supposedly flowed down from the seat of Zeus's authority. Of course, from the Christian point of view, this pagan challenge to the kingship of Jesus, politically and religiously, is quite literally satanic and conveys an antichrist spirit. In addition to the high place, there is a temple of Dionysius, who was the god of pleasure and drunkenness and sexual indulgence. Worship is linked directly to immorality in the shrine of Dionysius. There's nothing subtle about it. The other attraction is called the temple of Asclepius, we may not have heard that name before, but he was popular back then. It was a center of healing. People would come from hundreds of miles, and they'd go into the shrine of Asclepius. He was always pictured as having a staff with snakes wrapped around it. It's become the modern symbol of our medical profession. In the temple of Asclepius, the sick would be drugged. Venomous serpents would be unleashed, and they would crawl over the bodies of the sick during the night. And they were said to invoke dreams, visions, and trances from the god who would then reveal a cure to those that were sick. Those pri uh, privileged enough to hear from Asclepius would then have their names 
and their disease written on a white stone to commemorate the coming supernatural healing. So Pergamum is clearly the center of idolatry in the East, where the gods of power and pleasure and well-being all vie for the glory only due to Jesus. Jesus acknowledges these very difficult circumstances. He says, I know where you live, where Satan lives. He also assures them that he knows of their dogged perseverance under pressure. The governor of Pergamum, unlike the governor of other cities, is given the right of the sword by Rome, which means he can enact the death penalty at will. He can execute anyone at any time at will. The own local bishop, Antipas, had just been martyred as a witness to Christ, publicly slain during Domitian's reign. So here's a very clear example of Roman imperial power literally killing a Christ follower. And Jesus commends them for staying faithful under this severe opposition. There's a word of rebuke, however, in the third section. Yet I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice immorality. So also, some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. If not, I will come to you soon and will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. So there is a word of rebuke. Not for everybody in Pergamum, but for the, for the several that were accused of accommodating themselves to the rampant non-Christian culture and then tainting their testimony. Jesus mentions the followers of the teachings of Balaam living in Pergamum who are compromising their witness. They're reverting back to pagan temple practices and also to sexual immorality. So in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, recall now, Balaam is a prophet. He's hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel. And three times he tries to utter a curse against the people of God. And three times he's blocked. In fact, he is caused to bless the people of God, despite himself. But undaunted, Balaam comes up with a plan B which is basically to entice the Israelite men to stumble into sexual immorality by sending Moabite pagan women to tempt them away from God. And we read about this in Numbers chapter 5. While, the Israelite, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. So Moses is stunned by the backsliding of these men who had followed God all the way through the desert wilderness, following him as he appeared in the pillar of fire. And in Numbers 31, it says, Moses says, have you allowed all those women to live, he asked them. They're the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Jesus then follows up this example of Balaam's ensnaring of the Israelites 
with a reference to the Nicolaitans. And we don't know who these people were. The early church fathers, Irenaeus and Tertullian, said, without going into specifics, that they were converts that then later fell back into lives of unrestrained indulgence and gave themselves over to pagan corruptions. So clearly, despite the fact that the majority have held fast and they've held their principles in Pergamum, there are still some who are accommodating and compromising. And maybe they're seeking the path of least resistance in a very hostile environment. Maybe they're looking for a peaceful coexistence with Roman paganism, as though such a thing could be had. It'd be very easy to rationalize the need to do just a little bit to fit in. Surrounded by the temples of Zeus, the Caesars, Dionysius, there was immense pressure to go along with the dominant culture and to at least participate a little bit. A little bit of a sprinkle here, a little bit of a food uh, um, offered to idols eaten there. Apparently, some were even slipping back into temple prostitution and in the case of the cult of Dionysius, outright sexual rites. Everybody, however, was looking to these pagan sources of power and pleasure and well-being for their sources. Jesus warns those in Pergamum not to compromise their faith and not to gloss over this kind of accommodation. He bluntly states he will bring judgment on this debased behavior with the sword of his mouth. The same imagery that the Old Testament uses to describe the cutting down of spiritual adultery, physical adultery, and paganism. And in the same way that Ehud would not tolerate any kind of false religion or a false king, Christ says he will deal with this compromise very directly. Now fourth, the promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. So for the Christ followers in Pergamum, who do seem to be in the majority, Jesus promises two things. The first, hidden manna. So instead of the unclean food offered to idols, they're going to get hidden heavenly manna provided directly by Jesus. And again, we're back into the story of the wilderness as the Israelites wander and God has delivered them from a pagan king in Egypt. He shows him their mercy. He gives them his tangible presence and his daily provisions. And as a way of remembering these gifts from God, the Israelites will take a pot of manna and put it inside the Ark of the Covenant so they can always remember that he's delivered them from pagan oppression and he gave them his grace as they walked through the wilderness. So in Exodus 16:34, as the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. And in Hebrews 9:4, this Ark of the Covenant contained the golden jar of manna Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So manna is a kind of outward physical symbol of God's grace. It's the same grace promised to the Christians in Pergamum. Jesus is no stranger to satanic temptation. He came into the wilderness of his own. Uh, Satan offered him power, status, and well-being. 
Jesus rebuked him by quoting scripture, reminding Satan that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus says he will rely on the Father's promises, even in the midst of imminent hardship. And so should those in Pergamum. The other thing Jesus promises is a white stone. In ancient Rome, there's this custom of awarding a conquering victor in an athletic competition a white stone with their name written on it. These are called tessera. The white stone is a kind of ticket to a special awards banquet held for the victor. So the eventual triumph and future vindication of the faithful in Pergamum is being explicitly promised here. Jesus is going to inscribe on each white stone a name known only to the one who receives it, a picture of intimacy and love for those who walk beside him in these very difficult circumstances. And rather than it being a stone inscribed from some temple of Asclepius, Jesus is promising a stone of lasting victory and healing. In conclusion, the Christians in the city of Pergamum are up against heavy satanic opposition. The pressures to look to other pagan sources of pleasure, power, and wellness are very overpowering. In a certain sense, the book of Revelation, the author of the book of Revelation, holds up dimensions of pagan first century Rome as an antichrist presence that is fighting unrelentingly against the saints. In 1 John 2.18, John reminds his readers that as they anticipate a future antichrist, they are to recall that, quote, many antichrists have already come. Many antichrists have already come. Now, whatever your viewpoint is on the fantastic symbols in the later chapters of John's apocalypse, the beast, the false prophet, the whore of Babylon, whatever your viewpoint is on the particular timing of the events, it seems clear that to John, pagan first century Rome is already displaying a pervading antichrist influence coming against these believers. It's perhaps not the final or the definitive appearance of this antichrist spirit, but it's still powerful, enticing, deceptive, and satanic. The Austrian farmer Franz was up against a pervasive antichrist spirit in the middle of the 20th century as he was pressured to compromise according to Nazi values and swear loyalty to their debased leader. Like Antipas, the bishop of Pergamum, Franz faced a price to be paid for his fortitude in standing against the spirit. Now, clearly, in the 21st century United States, we don't face these exact same issues. We don't have to sacrifice to pagan gods. We're not needing to venerate emperors or bow before Nazi leaders. Yet, I am certain we all live and we sense the growing cultural pressures that are swelling all around us. More and more of our society is living without any reference to fundamental values that we once held as unshakable. The centers of power are promoting other gospels and are often sneering at our faith. We're not in Pergamum, but the ground under our own feet does seem to be shifting recently. 
It all feels a little disorienting. Johnny Erickson Tata has a great quote which sums up how I feel and how maybe many of you are feeling. And gradually, though no one remembers exactly how it happened, the unthinkable becomes tolerable and then acceptable and then legal and then applaudable. I think that's worth reading again. And gradually, although no one remembers exactly how it happened, the unthinkable becomes tolerable and then acceptable and then legal and then applaudable. I'm sure we all have a list of top 10 items that could run through that schema of being unthinkable, tolerable, acceptable, legal, and now applaudable. So what would Jesus be saying to us today through his words to Pergamum centuries ago? What would Jesus say to Conway Alliance? Out of the three sermons that we've looked at, I think this is the most straightforward. It's quite simply, hold the line. Hold the line. Do not accommodate or compromise the essentials of the faith or our testimony, despite the pressures. Through regular fellowship, through the reading of the word, through sharing of the sacraments together, and through our corporate awareness of Jesus' presence, hold firm and hold fast. Hold the line. This was how the believers in Pergamum encouraged and centered themselves in Jesus. Regular fellowship, the reading of the word, the sharing of the sacraments, and the awareness of Christ's presence together. To quote Winston Churchill as he encouraged his people during the darkness of the Nazi air raids. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never give in. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in. The author John provides a final graphic image of the ultimate defeat of evil as the apocalypse winds down in Revelation chapter 19. It is a fitting passage to end with to remind ourselves that just as Rome fell, the Nazi regime crumbled. So too these hostile forces which seem to be working against the saints today will be judged and cast out by the only one who has the authority and power to do so. Revelation 19. I saw heaven open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written, this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords.